Ezra chapter 6. Live long and prosper, says Mr. Spock in the Star Trek TV series and the films as well. It was presented, wasn't it, on the TV show as a, as a welcoming signal from the alien Vulcan people with an accompanying hand gesture, which is quite hard to do. <laughs> yes, live long and prosper. But that phrase is actually an abbreviated, abbreviated form of a traditional Jewish religious blessing. Not a lot of people know that. Uh, the phrase echoes the, the Hebrew shalom alakem, and that fits well into what we're going to talk about today. I remember being at uh, one of our client's premises back when I was an accountant uh, in the lead up to Christmas time. And piled up in the corner of the accounts office were lots and lots of tins of Quality Street. And each of them was wrapped up and, and had a message uh, that said this, Happy Christmas to our loyal customers and a prosperous new year. And now there was never any for the accountants, but I'm not in the slightest bit better. I think they, they thought our fee was too much or something. But uh, I, I used to wonder about that prosperous phrase at the end, a prosperous new year. What does that mean? Uh, a prosperous new year. I mean, I mean they're, they're obviously trying to be nice and positive uh, about the days ahead. And, and, and they're a business giving uh, gifts to other businesses. Uh, so I, I had a, at least a, a little hint of, of, a, of a capitalist ring to it. Yeah, it did. It also has more than a hint of, of, of you do well, then you buy from us. You buy more from us. Self-interest of, of, of sorts. And I guess there you have my early days of picking apart written down phrases uh, which would become more useful when I later taught the Bible, maybe. But, and I don't mean to be overly critical because it's just a turn of phrase, but, but what does it mean to have a prosperous new year? What does it mean to prosper when the Bible uses that word? Because it does. Uh, David says to Solomon at David's uh, deathbed, he's passing on the mantle as it were, and he says these words, Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. What does it mean for God to prosper us in all that we do and wherever we turn? his people. Does God abundantly bless our, our work, our promotions, our business takings, the length of time our boiler lasts, uh, the, the years we get out of a washing machine, the mileage we get out of a, a tank of fuel or a pair of shoes? Does he? Psalm 1 famously says, blessed is the man who walks in the, not in the counsel of the wicked. Next verse, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Next verse, in all that he does, he prospers. What does it mean to prosper as one of God's people? Well, we know firstly what it doesn't mean, because we have what's called the prosperity gospel. And there are some who preach that. Uh, the idea in summary, is that if you follow Jesus, uh, you'll be rich and powerful and healthy, and that, that if you have enough faith, you'll gain all of these things. Several problems with it. Firstly, it's not the gospel. 
Secondly, it indulges sin because prosperity preachers appeal to people's natural desires. They, they sort of seduce people because they know that people have an insatiable desire for stuff and health and power. And they themselves do, and so that is what they offer, and that is what they amass for themselves, leaving their followers with wishful cravings for the same. Yet Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. It's not the gospel, it's indulgent to sin. It's, it's also too literal. Because you do not have, because you do not ask, in James chapter 4, is not name it and claim it. James is actually talking about condemning covetousness. The very thing at the root of the problem. If you had a look at James 4, you would see that. And in John chapter 10, verse 10, when Jesus promises abundant life, well, this is actually rich in imagery of, of eternal life in the kingdom. As, as depicted in other parts of the Bible, uh, Bruce Milne, a Bible commentator on John, says that this abundant life is, is glimpsed briefly in Eden and is seen in vision in Revelation as a city coming down from God, the holy dwelling place of God with his people. In other words, in other words abundant life is the life for which we were created and comes again in Jesus with the new creation. It's too literal. It's also future too soon. Now, there's a technical phrase for this. It's called over-realized eschatology. You can do with that as you wish. But in layman's terms, it means that there's future promises expected now in this false gospel. Because in the future, in the future, you know this, but you will be healthy and you will reign with Christ with the riches of the kingdom. But not yet. Our address is still the old earth. It's like the prodigal son asking for his future inheritance right now. Can I please have it? And there are some who preach that. That's a false gospel. It's sprinkled with the odd Bible verse taken, skewed to mean whatever they want it to mean to make it sound right. But it's not true. But is it not true that most of us have a little bit of that knocking around in us yet? I don't know where we got it from. But sometimes this kind of hits me, that, 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 we, that we get surprised if, I don't know, well-known Christians or missionaries get, get sick, or, or perhaps more subtly, we think that we can offer God church attendance or Bible reading or tithing because that job interview is coming up or that medical examination and we need to get the right result. That's a little bit of prosperity gospel. Maybe you didn't realize that. Prosper in Psalm, first Psalm number one, is in that context of a, of a tree planted by a river. Go back one slide, please, Paul. It's, a, it's, it's, that, it's that idea, isn't it, that, that it bears fruit. You see it there in verse three. It's life. It's a word prosper that means to accomplish satisfactorily what's intended. It's, it's, it's a life whose labor is not in vain, but, but succeeds in, in God's purposes into eternity. It's someone living as God intended and bearing fruit that really lasts. That's what prosper means. So it's about God's work. And that can be with or without material accompaniments. 
Here in Ezra chapter 6, we can see that it's God's work that really prospers. Look at verse 14 with me on the page. It's a kind of summary of what's happening. A summary verse for the chapter. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered. You hear it there. Prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Firstly, notice God's work rubber stamped by pagans. Last time we were in chapter 5 and we saw the building work at the temple has, has finally restarted after 15 years or so of being stopped. And there was that question of who gave you permission that came from Tatanai, that governor of the region, and his associates. And, and Darius the king is then presented with all the facts. Remember, building project, big stones, wood in the walls, permission, well, they claim to have permission from one of your predecessors, Cyrus, to be precise. And as chapter 6 begins, the search is on for this document, this archive, to see if said permission exists. That's what verse 1 tells us. They're having a look. And it doesn't take long, it seems, to find it. For by verse 2 it's been found. It's, it's in a place called Ekbatana, the, the cit- citadel, it says, or the fortress in the province of, of Media. A scroll is located. And what's on the scroll? Well, what's on the scroll is similar to the, the decree that we read way back in chapter 1. Uh, but, but there's more detail. This is the sort of and put it in writing that was mentioned back in chapter 1. This is it put in writing and found again. Perhaps chapter 1 was the public announcement. And here we have the legal text, which has got more details in it. And in the detail, in the first part of this um, chapter, verses 1 to 5, we find what, what's written down by Cyrus. We find measurements for the temple, 60 cubits by 60 cubits. That's 27 meters, 90 feet in old money. We find the makeup of the walls. There's to be three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. We find out how the gold and silver vessels are, going to be, are having to be brought back from Babylon and returned and put in the house of God, each in its place. Carefulness to this. There's a, it has to be done right to this from King Cyrus. But in verse 6, notice how, onwards, notice how, notice how Darius takes up the mantle. He really rubber stamps this decree. Verse 6. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province of beyond the river, Shethar, Bozanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Slightly sticky grammar there, but you get the idea, don't you? Leave it alone. Let them get on with it. Stay away. Let them belt. Don't be interfering. Look at the strength of verse 11. I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of, this, of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. So, uh, Darius is now making his own decrees, isn't he? It's not just what Cyrus said. This is his own decree. And, he, and he's kind of increasing it. He's, he's rubber stamping it and he's adding to it. He really means business. Verse 12 says he wants God to overthrow anyone who tries to alter this plan or destroy the house of God. He wants the building finished. He wants it done well. He wants it done right. He wants it done proper. He wants it done with diligence, says the end of verse 12. He's, he's sounding a lot like, like Nebuchadnezzar in, in Daniel 2 with the strength of the words that he uses, the consequences that he promises to anyone who doesn't do it. 
This is what we read in Daniel 2. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretations, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. He's like Nebuchadnezzar, who, who's actually another pagan king who appears to believe in some places, but we aren't quite sure. Believe as in trust God and follow the true God. Because it's possible that Darius is believing here. But again, like with Cyrus, that there are commentators on both sides. Perhaps he's found the true path, the Hebrew God for his own God. Or, or perhaps he's just committed to a policy of, that he thinks will keep the natives beyond the river on side. If he can get all those local gods placated, he'll have peace in the empire, that kind of idea. Because, of course, there, there's more than a, than a hint of, of self-interest there in verse 10, if you notice. He tells us he wants a pleasing offering made to God, but he wants prayer. Did you see it there? Verse 10, for the life of the king and also his sons. God's people are are to pray for kings and those in authority in any case, aren't they? 1 Timothy 2, verse 2 tells us that. I trust you do. And so this again may be genuine faith because everyone knows they need prayer. Certainly believers do. Or instead he may want to be covering his bases, adding another deity because he wants that petition to add on to the other petitions because he wants to live long and prosper. But still, the rubber stamping of Cyrus' edict by Darius, another pagan king, has to be considered here again as quite remarkable. Secondly, notice that it's financed by pagans. Yes, Darius finds the record from Cyrus. He rubber stamps it with his royal prerogative, his strong additional incentives, and he, and he gets the temple back, back to building. But don't miss the very important detail of Cyrus's scroll in verse number five, where it says, let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Verse number four, sorry. This is not mentioned in the original announcement in chapter 1. This is new detail. But this is important detail, isn't it? Because remember, remember why this happened. Because all of this was actually as a result or born out of opposition. Because this was the difficulty brought by that plan and official, that Tatanai. Have you got, have you got permission? What's your names? This was intended to put a big question mark over the whole project, the, the work, or even to stop it. And look at, look at the result. What's happened? It turns out that the treasury are actually now paying for the building project. They were meant to, according to Cyrus and Darius. Well, he, he extends it even. That's what he does. Verse 8, he says that the cost is to be paid in full without delay from the royal revenue. That, that's actually back pay. And who doesn't love back pay, you know? That's, that's great, because now it's going to be without delay for what's already there, and, and there's going to be money more for, for what's yet to be built. And there's more. There's more. Darius says that the sacrifices have to be provided for the altar, whatever they cost, the animals, the bulls, the ram, and the sheep, and the food, the, the wheat, the salt, the wine, and the oil, whatever is needed, he says, as the priests require. That's the way it's put. No budget constraints, just as they see fit. And it's not just a one-off either, because they have to be provided the sacrifices day by day. In other words, there's no end to it. From then on. That's some commitment, isn't it? It fairly came back to bite, didn't it? This 
this plan. I mean, he, he meant it for evil. Now, he wasn't that critical as we saw last week in his dealings, but, but he in some way meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. And maybe, maybe you get tired or worn out by the trouble you get into in this world. Creaking limbs and January credit card bills and someone else getting promoted, not you, and broken down boilers and sick relatives. and Maybe you get tired and worn out. An opposition from authorities across our world to, to our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. An opposition to, to Bible teaching right here on what up until recently were basic moral norms like marriage and sexuality in our country. And we get weary and battle weary. And perhaps we even grumble and perhaps we may even lose heart and even diminish our view of God in the process. But please... Please put this in your mind's locker today. Because next time you hear something pessimistic or troubling, remember, remember that God used this opposition to actually further the work. He used enemy action to bring out Darius's checkbook. He used the question of who gave you permission and what are your names to actually progress the work. Not diminish it. Prosperity teachers, of course, they ignore trouble in the lives of believers. They say it's only there for you to exercise faith and get rid of. But that's not so. Because there are times when there's plenty of trouble. But God, but God can use the very attack of the enemy for good. He can work out that purpose. He can advance his kingdom. He can prosper his kingdom. And he will prosper his kingdom. An army in verse 14 tells us that the elders of the Jews built and they prospered. Did you see that? They prospered at their, at their most important work. They prospered in the reason they were there and then. To advance the work of God in the world. The governors, they, they listened to their king, Darius. They, they do it with diligence as they're ordered. They finished. They enabled the finishing of the building project by the people who were building in the second part of verse 14, Ezra lists those kings who, who made it happen, as it were, and he, and he gets he, those who made a decree, he lists them, and he, and he gets them in the right order. Verse 14, second half, the decree of God, that's the first decree, isn't it? That's the, that's the sovereign one, that's the real king of everywhere and everything. And then in chronological order, the decree of King Cyrus, the decree of King Darius, and then as he sets us up for the rest of the book of Ezra, the decree of King Artaxerxes, which is coming next. And the building is finished. It's finished on the third day of the month of Adar. That's February or March time in our calendar. In the sixth year of Darius, that tells you it takes about four years to get the temple built. And approximately 70 years from the start of the exile, just as Jeremiah had promised. Rubber stamped by pagans, financed by pagans, and finally joined by pagans. When the temple is completed, there's this dedication of the house, and there's lots of joy again around, and rightly so. We can see that in verse 16. There's joy mentioned on several occasions here at the end. They've offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, and 400 um, lambs. No expense spared, because we know who's picking up the bill. 
But seriously, of course, this sacrifice is there because of that very serious matter of the covering of sins. And offering for the sins of the people is being made because, of course, people are sinful and and God's people are sinful too. And God makes a way, doesn't he, through the temple and through the sacrificial system for Israel to be cleansed of sin by giving them the temple where he dwelt and, and the sacrificial system to atone for their sins. And it's a matter for all Israel because we're told there, in verse 17 at the end, that 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. There's, there's a unity in this. But it's not just all Israel, is it? In verse 14, they celebrate the Passover again proper, in the proper surroundings, in the proper way. The priests are set in their divisions, and the Levites are set in their divisions, just as King David had, had arranged many years before, and just as Moses had outlined in the books of the law. The priests and the Levites purified themselves. They slaughtered the Passover lamb and they begin to eat. But notice, notice with me, verse 21. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples to the land of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. You see, Israel will accept aliens and outsiders if if those outsiders join Israel. The the returned community is not into racism. No, they're into holiness. Isn't that right? Those who are not ethnic Jews can eat and, and join in the Passover, but they can only eat and join in the Passover if they separate themselves from the uncleanness and the practices of the, 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 the land and the people around them and, and declare allegiance in God alone. That's clear, isn't it? It's not just come on ahead. It's only if you follow God and swear, uh, declare allegiance to him alone that you're welcome. If they worship the God of Israel, they're most welcome to eat the Passover. They're also there to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which always follows Passover immediately. It's seven days after it. The seven days after it, they do so with joy because verse 22 says that God has made them joyful. He's made them joyful. This also um, is interesting here that that, that tells us the king's heart has turned to them at the end of the chapter. And he's called here, Darius is called the king of Assyria because that's interesting because he's not, he's not just the king of Assyria. It was swallowed up long ago by Babylon and then by the mighty Persian Empire. Clearly it was still known somewhere as, as, as Assyria. But, but that reminds us, that reminds us here, that the ten northern tribes are not forgotten. They're not forgotten. The ten northern tribes, everyone apart from Judah and Benjamin, were, were exiled earlier uh, to, to Assyria. They were captured by Assyria. And then, of course, Judah and Benjamin are captured by Babylon. And Babylon has already taken over Assyria at the Battle of Nineveh. And then, of course, Cyrus comes along and he takes over the whole shooting match, as my mother would say, uh, the whole lot, the whole empire. And then the, twel- the exiled people from the 12 tribes are all in exile, as it were. So now at the return to the land, they're in a sense all included again at the Passover, at the feast, at the temple. God has worked on kings 
and makes a way for the rebuild. But God doesn't just make a way for Israel. No, that that was not the extent of what was intended ever. No, no, they were to be a light to the nations to show them the way. That's what Isaiah says twice in in chapter 49 and chapter 60. That God told Abraham, what did he tell him? That in him all nations would would be blessed. The pagans are joining in too. We sang a Russian hymn this morning, How Great Thou Art. That includes Russians, that includes people from from, from China, that includes people from from South America, that includes us, all nations. And when Jesus comes, he, he offers salvation to all who will come to him. He offers a covering for sin to all. In Ezra, God is carrying forward his purposes in the world through Israel. He's reaching the nations here, and he will in an even greater way when Jesus comes. And through his people, the gospel, the work of God prospers across our world. Under communism in China in the 1960s, the doors to the country were shut for several decades. When they reopened Well, any pessimistic or maybe average missionary analyst would probably have expected there to to have been little gospel growth. I mean, Chairman Mao was cracking down hard on the Christians. He was imprisoning them. He was banning churches. He was closing their doors. He was putting them in prison. But what actually happened when it began to reopen partially in the 1990s was they discovered that revival had happened. More Christians were there than ever before. More Christians, even the members of the Communist Party today. The gospel was prospering in adversity, and that is what it does. God's work, God works through all of the hardships. And maybe the circumstances were even better than the most optimistic of onlookers could imagine. That's how he, that's how he does it. He surprises us, doesn't he? In, in, in verse 22, the chapter ends and we're told that the pagan king aided them in the work of the house of God. What a surprise. What's he doing aiding them in the, in the, in the work of the house of God? God sees to it that in the world that he prospers in his work. He can do that. He works all the circumstances to make it happen. He can use trouble to do that. Does God prosper his people? You didn't answer that question, Richard. Well, the answer is yes, he does that in the Bible. Yes, the children of Israel were prospered in their journey. Their sandals did not wear out, we're told. They should have. Their clothes lasted them 40 years. Perhaps that's not what you imagine as prosperity. And of course, Jacob... Well, he prospered whenever he was before crafty Laban and the goat herds in Genesis. And, and Abraham became very, a very rich man, as did Solomon, as did plenty of others. But, 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 but of course, we still have brothers and sisters in church who suffer the effects of this world cursed by sin. We still have brothers and sisters living under the iron rule of Kim Jong-un today in North Korea. Uh, We still have those under Islamic law in Iran and all of its oppression. And we have those living in, in trailers in Eritrea and pastors in prison in Pakistan. And we have all of that. How do you reconcile that? Which one is it? Well, we can because the answer is it's really about God's work. When we, when we trust in Jesus and follow him, that, that, is, that is to be our, 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 our function, our purpose, our chief desire. And that 
that prospers. Whether or not, whether we do or not in a material sense is, is up to God and his ways and workings and in a sense neither here nor there. It is those who heed the Lord's word who prosper in Psalm 1. It's by keeping charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies that result in Solomon prospering, according to the end of life chat from King David. A Christ-centered biblical theology understands and transforms our worldview so that we, yes, we, we pray and, and ask for health and, and, and wealth and, 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 and might only, only to serve our joy in Christ and advance the kingdom of Christ in the world. See, we, we shouldn't twist it, that promise to apply only to material prosperity, for that is far, far less valuable than spiritual prosperity. And God may choose to prosper us materially, but that will certainly not happen at the expense of your spiritual prosperity. It won't. God is big enough and powerful enough to ensure that his work will prosper, no matter the opposition, no matter the intention of the opponent even, because he made the betrayal of Judas work for the good of his plan. He made the cruel, bloodthirsty Jewish Sanhedrin function for gospel advancement. And he made the sea of my own skin of Pilate for, to prosper his work in the world. God will prosper his work. That's the work that prospers. And he can use blessing, if we call it that, and adversity. But he will not stop. He will see it through. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we thank you for your work in the world which prospers. Help us to get behind that plow and not our own plow. Help us to serve and realign our purposes, Father, so we recognize that that is our chief work, that is our function of foremost importance the gospel, and, and sharing it and passing it on. And we pray these things in our Savior's name.